1: and another episode of Five Great British Horror Films. Today's guest is filmmaker Emily McMahon. Hello, Emily. Hello. And uh, you you join us, I won't won't pretend, you join us after a a night, I'm making you do this in the morning, after you've been doing a night shift on on, on an edit that you're working on different time zones, I do believe.
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: So I'm a bit groggy. Okay, well that's not a problem. We're We're talking about horror films and I think that's something that you love, so I think we'll be okay with uh, yes. generating the energy needed. Um, yes. So just to remind the, the, the listener, this is five great bits of horror films. It's not the definitive five. This is five that Emily finds interesting and wants to talk about as much as anything that they might be favourites of hers. Um, we're going to do five minutes on each one. But before we do that, Emily, you're a filmmaker then, so what, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you up to that you can tell us you're, you're working at the moment?
2: Well, I'm actually working on a film um, that I've been working on for quite a while. It's set in Mongolia mm-hmm. and it's um, sort of a it's an experimental film, I guess we'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about this group of women that I met about ten years ago um, who are contortionists. Okay. And they're all from this little village in the desert. And so it's such a weird story that it doesn't really feel like a documentary even though it is mostly sort of documentary-ish but anyway that's what the editor's is sort of trying to work out the sort of boundary between truth and fiction
1: so you what you you found you found because it does sound like a fiction when you say because <laughs> the word the words like contortionist it's the s more than the contortion and then yeah. out in mongolia you're like yeah that's basically what you're obviously going to stumble into yeah
2: yeah yeah it's it's quite a it's quite a cool sort of circumstance. I went there years ago and i I met this guy who was the only person that i that I knew that spoke english mm-hmm. and half the time when he spoke to me, he gave me this really really thorough really sincere kind of explanation about You know, pretty much everything, that sort of politics, the Soviet annexation, the relationship with the Chinese, the sort of economy, people's philosophy, like all this kind of stuff. Yes. What I learned at a certain point was that he wouldn't ever say, I don't know. So if I asked him a question and he didn't know the answer, he would just make something up. Wow. So half the time I would get this really, really thorough, like sincere truth. And the other half of the time I would get an equally thorough, equally sincere, just load of nonsense. (laughs) And so a lot of it was that I I didn't realize that he was sort of like stitching me up until I would try to repeat it to somebody else. Yeah. Like, for example, one of the stories that he told me was that like a big Mongolian export is cashmere. That's true. Mm -hmm. Uh, He told me that the reason that cashmere is so expensive is because they only use the beard of the goat. (laughs) (laughs) Totally ridiculous. So, uh, and it wasn't until I repeated it and it start, it came out of my mouth that I realized, of course, this is ridiculous nonsense. it's weird that, isn't it?
1: How when you're listening, you you, you everything seems true because obviously part of listening is it's just being polite and respecting the other person and yeah. and not thinking they're gonna tell me fibs. Yeah, but, but exactly. like you say, the minute you go, oh, have you heard? And then yeah. as the words fall out <laughs> your mouth. <laughs> yeah.
2: And so this is it, like, and what do I know, because it's, I've never been to Mongolia before, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, went, when I went back, this was sort of my mission, was, because he told me about this village where all the women were contortionists, mm-hmm. and uh, it was, it's in the middle of nowhere, like, really, about as much in the middle of nowhere as you can get on this planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went, because I was stranded there for another reason that is another story, but... Um, if well, I'm in the West anyway, I might as well go to this village and find out if that's true. And I went, and it was bloody true.
1: <laughs> well, there we go. No no, no, no goat hairs off the chin, but contortionists are true. Who'd have thought that had been the, the reality but, of it all? Yeah. Well, look, let's get into uh, your five great British horror films, and we'll do them okay. in date order, as I always do. So, okay. Before we do your five, actually, we have got one little bu- Brucey bonus that you want to throw at us. There's a scene in Wickerman that you want that you think is worth highlighting. So before we get into five, you want to tell us what that scene is in your mind.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, like I said, like I said before, it's it's the obvious one. It's the it's the Brit Ecclund naked dance scene, and mm-hmm. um, the reason that I raise it is just so it's this it's this fantastic moment where, of course, it's like really this amazing British. Folk horror musical, and this is sort of like the musical centerpiece. Yeah. Um, and you've got Edward Woodward on one side of the wall and Britt Ackland on the other, and he is just this kind of like demented, nubile, virginal sort of straight man, and she's knocking her wrist against the against the wall, and he hears this, and it's driving him crazy because he's hearing this through the wall and as far as he's concerned this is the most exotic thing he can imagine there's this beautiful woman in the next room and she's probably not actually knocking her wrist against the wall or dancing around naked or any of that stuff but this is just his like fervent fantasy of being so close to this woman who's making some sound and it, it can only be the most exotic thing you imagine and so this is like his his fantasy of what could possibly be going on, making this sound in the next room, um, and I just think it's such a great sort of character sketch of Edward Woodward.
1: You've just uh, you've blown my mind there because I've never thought of that as being his imagination. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, I've always seen it as literal, like because of, because of the scene that precedes it with the you know the, the landlord's daughter and all that. Uh uh-huh. It was like the idea that there was just like the this was like the pinnacle of of of. Of the kind of uh, promiscuous island, ganging up on him, was is, uh-huh. is the daughter finally? You know, she she makes a she makes a push him. but now you've said it, it makes perfect sense because obviously it's behind a wall. So we're seeing we're seeing into his mind, not not yeah. seeing her dance naked.
2: Yeah, his absolute panic at the thought of this woman and her misbehavior. Yeah,
1: it's fantastic. My, my favourite fact about Wickerman, I mean, I mean, something I'd repeat on this bloody podcast, but I'll, I'll say it to you. Um, is um, Robin Hardy came up to Walthamstow to do a showing of Wicker Man, and, uh-huh. in, and, and in the Q and A afterwards, he said that the film was really popular in the southern states of America. Okay. Because they because they see it as a as a pure martyrdom film, not as a horror oh, film. Yeah. The idea that he uh-huh. doesn't give up, give up God and burns in the Wicker Man is to them the ult- ultimate martyrdom.
2: Wow, that's
1: so strange. So there you go. Yeah, I, I was thinking I was bad misreading the uh, the the f- <laughs> favorite sex imagination <laughs> scene. They're reading the whole film like something I've never thought of, and then like you can you can read it that way. It does it does work, but it's an amazing twist of a horror film to go. No, this is a film about martyrdom. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, of course. I mean, this is that's that would be the sort of Mike Pence view
1: of it, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, the... exactly. Yeah. Yes. In fact, Mike wow. Pence probably probably is in a lot of hotel rooms, imagining the girl next door naked. Oh,
2: God, yeah, that's why he's not allowed to... He's not allowed
1: in a room with women, is he?
2: Think about anyone but his wife, yeah.
1: <laughs> But anyway, let's, uh, let's move on to your first film, The Clock's Ticking, and we've got 1978's The Shout. Why would you choose that one? Um,
2: well, actually, it sort of relates... Um, and maybe this is just because I'm so sort of upswept in my own project, but it sort of relates to the same idea um, that I'm working with, which is this sort of boundary between reality and fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quite like it because you've got this like, this sort of gorgeously weird setup at the beginning. You've got Tim Curry, very young Tim Curry, and young John Hurt, and they're playing cricket in, um, in an asylum. Mm. which is, uh, it's just a fantastically weird sort of setup, And the sort of question at the, at the outside of the film is, you know, um, pointing to John Hurt, the the guy who ultimately, uh, performs the shout. Mm. Um, says, that man had a wife who loved him. How rare of a thing is that, <laughs> um, and then Tim Curry asks what happened, and he says he lost her. So the rest of the film, you sort of, John Hurt is a sound artist, and so, of course, he's kind of, like, fixated on this one sort of aspect of the senses. And this guy is supposedly, it, it's kind of an interesting commentary on, like, class and colonialism as well, because this guy is a, a wealthy, well-educated, well-traveled British man. Mm-hmm can't remember the actor's name right now. It is Alan Bates, I think it is, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's the one, yeah, that's him. So um, it, it comes around that he's staying with John Hurt and his wife, his sort of, like, you know, loving but long-suffering wife who's putting up with her weirdo sort of Foley artist husband
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, who's always filming, like, Bumblebees and Jars or rather recording Bumblebees and Jars or his own sort of voice and, you know, in a quite obsessive way. And they meet this guy, and he tells them about this trip that he's taken to Australia where he was married to an Aboriginal woman. And then he just proceeds to say all of this, like, utter rubbish about how it's acceptable in Aboriginal culture for men to kill their children. Um, and so he does, which is quite shocking. To yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And he just describes it as saying, like, "Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't want them. <laughs> um, I knew I'd leave, so I didn't want to leave her with children," which is kind of like the ultimate sort of gross colonial attitude. I was going to say, him. it's
1: like it's like metaphor claxon, isn't it? Really?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, what he does say, though, or what he says to John Hurt, is that he has learned this fantastic skill, um, which is the the shout. Uh, mm. the, ter- the terror shout—I think he calls it—and uh, basically, he's like, "I have this amazing talent. I learned it from a from a shaman, effectively, from a a sorcerer." Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't ever let you hear it because you'll die. And
1: so that is just, a lovely conundrum, isn't it? Yeah,
2: yeah, and especially for a foley artist, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So he follows the guy around and follows him around and says, you know, you have to, you have to let me hear it. I have to hear it. I have to hear it. And so the guy, um, Alan Bates' character says, okay, well, you have to wear earplugs. He's like, oh, but I really want to hear it. It's like, well, this is the only way it's going to work. You have to wear earplugs and we have to go out to the middle of the dunes. And so they go out on this walk and he does this terror shout and it's this, massive crazy impossible sound and there's sheep dropping dead all over the all over the fields nearby um and John Hurt has heard just enough to sort of pass out from the shock of it but not enough to be sort of penetrated by it or so he thinks but then um Alan Bates character starts talking about this sort of like common narrative of of uh, like spirit death. Like if somebody tells you that you're going to die, you just sort of shrivel up eventually. You people are prone to kind of being convinced by the notion of their own death. Mm. So the opposite, wa- the
1: opposite of positive thinking.
2: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and sort of like you know that I don't know if you ever saw the Stephen King movie *Thinner*, but that same sort of uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Same sort of idea. Like you're you're wasting away because you're convinced that you're about to. Um, and so John Hurt kind of starts going through a process like this um, of wasting away. No. <laughs> oh, five minutes, real are Emily. No. 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 Hold on. That's a cliffhanger for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is it. I mean, it's it's very tempting for me to say, let's all carry on talking, but we never get. To, it means we'd give one one film lots of time. And there's yeah. lots that I was thinking about because just while you were saying it, I'd, I'd realised that it's there's a Chuck Palnichek book called Lullaby, which is about a African lullaby. If you read it to someone, they die. Oh, so, wow, yeah. So there's lots of baby deaths. People yeah. finding this lullaby. So it is. There's fun. Fanta- I mean, in the shout. I mean, thinking about it now, given what you've said, it is amazing how much we sort of mythologise our our colonial past.
2: Absolutely, and yeah. give it
1: and give it so much power. Yet we went there and fucked them. We didn't. Yeah. We weren't scared of the power then. But then we bring it back. It's all magical and mystical, and we all feel good about it. And it's like it's really weird. But, well, uh, like
2: that's a kind of horrible thing to do is to sort of put the burden of this sort of exotic, magical stuff onto the Aboriginal people that are ultimately sort of like already suffering under the burden of colonial, uh, colonialism. colonial. Of course, yeah.
1: No, 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 totally, yeah. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's privilege to the max. I think it's oh, safe yeah. to say. Right then, we're going we're gonna to <laughs> jump now. We're going to jump decades. Um, I'm going to go with... The, cause we've not done either of these films yet, so I'll jump with... We'll go with The Children first, from 2008. Okay. Do you want to tell us a bit about that film and why you've chosen it?
2: Okay. Um, I saw it when it was in its sort of, like, embryonic stages. I saw it, I think, at... Um, I saw it at the Prince Charles. It might have been for Fright Fest. Okay. Um, and it was like hot off the press, like they had just finished a cut and it was not, there was like, it was not quite totally finished. Mm -hmm. I would have noticed, but we got this long sort of like rambling apology from the director um, who was convinced that it was like, uh, yeah, totally not ready. Um, But it was absolutely fantastic, uh, mainly just because it's this like incredible catharsis of watching a whole bunch of adorable children in cute winter clothes get killed by their parents. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know why I found that so kind of joyful, but it was really such a brilliant watch. Um, And it's sort of, uh, it's the, the story is sort of about this, you know, they're all these sort of like snotty, snotty handed and faced kids spreading germs all over the place, and uh, they all manage to catch this, like, psychotic disease Mm -hmm. um, that just makes them suddenly really dangerous. And uh, there's one kid in particular who's really weird-looking, like, weird, like, sort of porcelain doll, but he's a little bit older than the other kids as well. Um, he, he's called Polly. I was Facebook friends with his dummy on Facebook for a while. Um, as, as you as you do. Yeah, uh, but he's. I I, I kind of don't want to spoil it because it's just like so gory and gross and wonderful. But
1: well, maybe what what do you think it is about? Because children as the horror in in a horror film is is sort of cheating the norm, isn't It it, it presents something that's not meant to be scary.
2: Yeah, and I think so often you see films that really do make them scary, like you've got sort of Children of the Corn or Village of the Damned, like you've got this kind of trope of the creepy creepy kids, even like The Shining. Um, and in this case, they're not really scary. I mean, they're scary because they're suddenly violent, but they're not like, they're not a, it's not so pernicious. Like they're not, they're not malevolent in any other way than they've got this like, sort of violent flu and like i say there's something about just seeing really really gory horror where all the victims are kids that it it's yeah just really really fun
1: and it's it's, it's that thing about um it also makes me laugh when i hear people especially people talk about other people's children and they yeah. might and they might say oh she's she's she or he's a one you know and they'll yeah. be talking about 10 year old as if as if somehow they're uh, that Osama bin Laden—it's like this ten-year-old's yeah. plotting, and you're like, the ten-year-old's just being ten. Yeah. There's, no, there's no big strategy. You just don't like
2: them. You just don't like children. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. You kind of—you don't like them. This—it's fine, but it is. Yeah. But the, it, the flip side of that—it's also weird when you kind of go, "Don't like that child." I can't, I can't explain it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I I think, I mean, because I'm maybe a little bit of a victim of that, but I'm not a great people person, generally, and so I like kids about as as often as I like other people, which is seldom. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't have the same sort of, like, uh, really broody instinct towards them, so I think for me that kind of, like, added to the thrill of just watching them get brutalized in this film.
1: Was there any? Um, was there anything about the way that they were, that the children were directed, that you thought was interesting in the film?
2: Yeah, um, Polly in particular was. Um, well, his demise was especially gory, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not going to tell you about it because it's really like I don't want to spoil the surprise. Um, I mean, I
1: think, I think you're picking up on a good on a film that's sort of got. It gets a bit overlooked, I think, for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why, because it's a cracking horror film. And it was—I remember being grouped in. Sort two thousand eight was almost like you think that's three years after *The Descent* come out. So it was almost like they were, we were at kind of a halcyon period in terms of British yeah. horror, absolutely being made. And *The Children* was one of them, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, yeah, and the, it was, in my opinion, it was done really well. Like, like I say, they didn't overplay the sort of. They didn't overplay the creepy kid thing. Um, they, they had one who was fantastically creepy to the point of really feeling like a sort of Damien character. Uh-huh. Um, but even that, like, he was quite sort of blank-faced, and it wasn't, uh, yeah, like I say, it didn't play to any of the sort of existing tropes. Um, it just, just enough to
1: be... Where's Edgar? The calling time on the children. There we go. So, uh, moving on quickly then, to the same year, uh-huh. but, Uh huh. but... For a film that reportedly was made for forty five pound, um, it's yep. it, it's insane that it's gone on to a best of horror list. So tell us why Colin of two thousand eight is worth talking
2: about. Well, first of all, because um, because it was made for fifty quid. I mean, you talk about like a micro budget film. Really, mm-hmm. it's like this is this is the <laughs> the consummate example, um, and you know it's actually a pretty good film. Like you have to sort of make the obvious concessions for it. Like it's the effects are not uh, the best you'll ever see, but they're all done sort of with love. They're all done from like the point of the, the passion of the makers. And I think that that's the first kind of trick to making a super shoestring budget like this is if you make something that most of your mates would think is fun to participate in, all of a sudden you've got, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the story stone, stu- stone Soup, but you've got you know everybody coming out with their makeup and their own kind of weird skills and mm. oh I do like I can do Halloween makeup I can do wounds really well or I can do whatever yeah. make you look dead. Um, so it becomes this kind of like a group project, and that really comes through like you you can really see that in the film that everybody's sort of uh, everybody in it is really all in. Um,
1: but it's such a great idea, isn't it? I mean, on the you know budget aside, the yeah. the, the, the central idea, which it's strange to think, because what Day of the Dead was nineteen eighty five, uh-huh. which is I guess yeah. the first film that tried to humanise zombies in my to my imagination yeah, um, yeah. with with Bubba, um, uh-huh. uh, Bud, sorry, um, and then uh-huh. you get Colin, which is this idea, a film that's from the zombie point of
2: view, which. Yeah. Uh- Exactly, and it's sort of like it's the the question at the core of the film is actually quite philosophical. It's like, what is it to be human? Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so you're watching this guy essentially, like, a, as he after he's been bitten, as he's sort of descending into the the uh, realm of undeadness. And in a way, it's also sort of like a film about sickness. Mm. Um, you know, he's he's going for all of these weird. Uh, <clears throat> um, Yeah, like human conceits. There's one point where he steals an iPod off of another zombie. (laughs) (laughs) Like listening to the headphones. And it's like, uh, you know, you're sort of asking yourself, like... And the way he's looking at everyone and the way he's sort of going back to his, like, the place that he was created, essentially, as a zombie. um, You're kind of left with these questions, like, does nostalgia persist after death? Which is actually, like, a really sort of brutal... Um, proposition.
1: Well, if you think about sort of recent revelations about dealing with dementia where just giving some, because music sits so deep in our consciousness,
2: uh-huh.
1: yeah, we can wake up the human just by playing, I mean, they've done experiments where they, they play someone some music from their past yeah. and they're alive to it. Suddenly they're no longer this this sort of almost like brainless zombie themselves where suddenly they're alive to being alive again as opposed to just the the brain just dissolving. And so I guess the idea of positing after death, do we we hanker for what human was being?
2: Yeah, well, interestingly too, I mean, and I think it's in Japan. They've had some success in treating people with dementia by actually kind of creating a village for them um, where they're all sort of allowed to be a bit sort of foggy together Mm. um, but still have routines, like still be able to walk to the shop and, you know, of course there are sort of nurses or carers everywhere who will make sure you get back home but um, to kind of give people the space to to continue the things that give them comfort or that anchor them in their sort of sense of self um, and so yeah again this this film sort of does that it's like a, <laughs> weird to bring Proust into the conversation but Proust sort of talks about this like the the permeation of memory through your senses like you can kind of you know, you taste a, a biscuit that's been dipped in tea and all of a sudden you're in your grandmother's parlour as a little boy. Um, and there's really something to that, like something of that in this film that's like, you know, what is it uh, What is it of you, what is it of, of Colin that persists? But also, um, because I think we've been taught, through,
1: it's that thing about being taught through movies about what something is, and zombies is a complete... Movie fabrication. So the rules are what George Romero said. So, they, uh-huh. so, so then we get obsessed with the mass, the idea that zombies are going to get us. Yeah. But then this film goes, what if the zombies are just individuals? Yeah, yeah. Just like humans are.
2: And of course they are, and it yeah. sort of like really throws us. Your-
1: oh, that was a good one. That we could have talked about it for ages. That's a good one. That's the first time we've had Colin on, so I'm glad. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, yeah. Now we're going to jump to another another favourite of mine, uh, 2009's Tony. Do you want to tell us about that film?
2: Oh yeah, that's just such a great film. I actually have some notes on
1: it. Um, let's see. I mean, I mean, mean I'm talking to you from Leighton. You're talking to me from where? Are you in Dalston or, or Hackney?
2: Oh yeah, I'm in Dalston. Yeah. I'm so in, so I'm we're both. you D- you're, you're <laughs> in
1: you're in the set basically.
2: Yeah, exactly. I live right around the corner from Ridley Road, so it's all, like, right around my house. Um, so, I find this film kind of similar to, I don't know if you've seen Cronenberg's Spider with uh, Ray Fine.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Um, so, it's a similar sort of film, in a way, um, because it's both this sort of, like, this man who's stuck on the outside of a sort of a London that is departing uh, from his grasp, and um, and this film really sort of lingers on all the stuff that East London used to be. So it lingers on all the sort of like boarded up places, the boarded up cinemas and, you know, boarded up sort of uh, off licenses and all this kind of stuff that he he really is sort of in this closed off kind of space right in the sort of like trendiest. This was in 2009, too. So they could have shot anywhere, but they shot in like the trendiest part of of London at the time. Um, But they blocked all that stuff out. You didn't really see the traces of gentrification. You really just kind of zeroed in on this, like, uh, this picture of East London that isn't really East London anymore. Um, And you have as the main character this guy who's just, like, he's so completely lost. It's like uh, it, it, it sort of conveys this constant conflict within Tony himself of just, like, the exhausted angst of being an outsider who's like he's it's like he's perpetually too close to all the things he wants to avoid like people in general and uh, you know sort of outside world but uh he really wants to connect with them and just continually fails to do so uh and so watching him keep trying to reach out to people and watching him keep failing at making the connection you sort of have this like uh you have this affection for him, uh, and then he starts killing people, and it's like, <sighs> in every situation, it's sort of there. There are reasons why it makes sense for him to do it. There are reasons why it makes sense for him to kill the people he's with. But that's, that's
1: why it's such a magic film, isn't it? It's not yeah. black and white. The uh, the good and bad in this movie.
2: Absolutely, and you find that he's like you know he's he. He calls a, he calls a, oh, and that's sort of another thing too, like a, an old, um, an old sort of London trope is like phoning up a prostitute, like nobody does that anymore, phoning up a prostitute from those cards, cards that are in the phone boxes, mm. um, but phoning up and like asking for a cuddle, you <laughs> know? It's, and then you see him cuddling in his bed with, like, this massive bloated corpse. And it's like, this is really just a guy who's desperately trying to, trying to connect with people. He just can't do it while they're alive. Um, and then you also get this really nice, like, these little bursts of philosophy from from drug dealers and stuff. Just these little sort of, like... There's a, near the beginning, the first guys that he meets, he meets their drug dealer and he's on the phone and he just, like, spits out this amazing bit of sort of Nietzschean existential philosophy at Tony and then tells him to get the get the fuck out, basically. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, it's full of just little sort of treasures like that. Like, it's this really, um, like, for, for a film about a serial killer, it's, like, a really, really sensitive... Uh, picture of... No, of I mean, you could,
1: take, you could take the horror out of it, couldn't you? And it would be a beautiful study of a man who's grown up in London and London's left him behind.
2: Yeah, and I feel like in that, that's why I say it's so similar to Spider, because it, it is sort of like he's <laughs> you know, locked in this kind of cloud of, of ten years ago or whatever. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it is a horror film, definitely, and there are lots of really, like, stomach-turning moments in it. But it it has really the feel of like a I don't know like a a character study yeah as opposed to a a, a slasher film or whatever.
1: No, I mean because like you say, th- th- there's that wonderful confusion as to whether or not in killing someone is wrong, and that <laughs> and if a film can make you think that much sympathy towards a killer, that's that's a really weird feeling. It's like I'm not meant to go. Well, I can understand it. But it's also
2: kind of like if anybody's ever gone home with
1: some. Oh, finish that
2: thought. Just if anyone's ever gone home with some rando after the club, and you you know that feeling of like hmm, who have you got in the cupboard?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I must admit, I, I kept my first month in London. I interviewed a performance artist, mm-hmm. and I went to his a flat to do the interview. So this wasn't like going out of the club with him. But mm-hmm. he was an artist. I don't know if you know Franco B. Yeah, performance. Oh, yes, artist.
2: Yeah, I weirdly know I do know Franco,
1: yeah. Yeah, so a lovely fella, but I've yeah, never yeah. I go to his apartment um to go and interview him for a magazine. And I know he's a blood performer, and that's why I'm going. And then uh-huh. I walk in and his house is blood red walls uh-huh. and, and collages of hardcore gay porn on doors. And oh, I'm yeah. like I'm like, what house am I in? And then the C D rack was a stainless steel urinal. And I'm like, and, I'm like, and your, your brain's computing and Then we sit there. He's a, he's, a, he's a lovely, he's a lovely, gentle bear of a man. But if that was, some, if you'd arrive there after a night out, I can imagine the uh, the thoughts going through people's heads.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, if you if you do, if you were to go home with him, though, I mean, you'd be, you'd have a little bit of preparation.
1: <laughs> this is true. This is true. Right, and your final your final choice is Bang Up today, and I've not, I've not seen this at all, so I'm hearing lots of different things. You're going for Annihilation.
2: Yes. Yeah, so lots of things to really love about this film. I mean, I... Uh, I, I I'm going to start by saying that I'm going to stop short of calling it this sort of masterpiece that a lot of the... that word seems to be getting, like, attached to it a bunch by, by critics and whatnot, and I, I don't um, I don't concur with that. Um, I think that it has to be at least, you know, it has to weather a good ten years before we decide. At least
1: five. At least five yeah. years of uh, hanging yeah. around.
2: Yeah, and I think it's got lots of... Um, but again, this is sort of like... This is a, a like deeply philosophical movie. Um, and the things about it that make it interesting are sort of how would I describe it? Like elements of, um, yeah, the kind of concept of the post-human, like what happens, what happens after we're not here anymore. Um, and because we're all sort of, uh, I don't know, egoists, we have this sort of, we have this idea that if if we go, then we take everything with us. It's like, there is no sort of, um see
1: the climate change debate for that like one
2: yeah 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 exactly but so you know this this film kind of talks about so to give anybody who hasn't seen it to give you like a, a picture of sort of what it's about yeah there is this zone not entirely unlike the zone in stalker mm-hmm. um, but it's this zone that's that's material it's just materialized um and is growing on the coast of uh, uh, somewhere in America. Yeah. Um, And it's growing out of a lighthouse. They're calling it the Shimmer, and it's this, like, sort of, they've sent in all these army dudes, and nobody comes back, or anything that does come back comes back all fucked up. Yeah. Um, And it's because inside this Shimmer, everything is, different like time operates differently space operates differently you go in there for what feels like you know 40 minutes and you're in there for two months it's like wow. it, uh, not entirely unlike the zone in stalker in many ways okay uh, but everything in there is is different so you have like uh, these beasts <laughs> monster hybrid animals like a uh, a shark crocodile hybrid and like a um, a bear that doesn't have a face, but when it opens its mouth, it screams like a woman. Wow! Uh, I need yeah. to see this, don't I? Yeah, it's actually it's it's really interesting because what it what it's suggesting is that um, life kind of continues. Like life is gonna. It's going to take a new form, it's going to take a new shape, but it's actually quite disinterested in people. Well, this is this has always been the thing. I mean, I was reading about in Chernobyl,
1: where biologists are finding oh. there's this living matter where mm-hmm. there was radiation, that there's no scientific explanation as to how that organic material has actually grown and developed. They don't oh, understand. Yeah. So organic matter is something that's not just about us, is it? And I guess we should say, this is Alec Gall, and he wrote and directed this. This is his follow-up to... Uh, X-Machina, which was a, yeah. a big smash and a great sci-fi horror yeah. film.
2: and like X-Machina, it's, uh, it's female-led. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it was a really good choice, I think, to have it be all women. So at this point, at the, at the point that the movie starts, they've sent in all the soldiers and stuff already and all the guys with guns and all this stuff, and it's just been a fucking disaster and nobody's mm. come out. Um, and one of the women in the film is married to one of the guys who had gone in Um, there is a sort of like tepid love story that appears in the film for some reason that is totally incongruous to me. I have no idea why they put it in there. It feels really like, uh, that could be, that
1: that could be studio notes, I guess.
2: I'm sure. I'm (laughs) sure it was. Like it just feels like such a, it feels so tacked on, um, uh, all of these women go in and you know, they're a. Uh, an EMT, um, a biologist, uh, a psychologist, like, they're all sort of... There's a physicist, um, geologist, they're all sort of, like, the the, um, less violent (laughs) sciences.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And it's really interesting, like, the psychology of their sort of transformation is really interesting. It doesn't happen in the conventional sort of sci-fi way, because they don't... (laughs) Go on, finish that thought. Yeah, they don't default to the same kind of uh, Yeah, again, they don't default to the same kind of tropes because they're they're women and they're scientists, they're not like uh, Yeah, it's not like predator, it's a completely different
1: It sounds like it sounds like a continuation of what um, of what we saw in arrival where where you yeah. have you have the, the, the linguist character Wanting to learn, as opposed to wanting to dominate, which is, I guess, if you're saying this is a female-led cast and a story about them finding out more than the people that went in with guns, then yeah. I guess there's a there's maybe a a, a bigger point being made that that, uh, that that links back to it's sad that Hillary Clinton didn't get to be president of America, oh. <laughs> in a sense, in a sense that that the the uh, the fear of the female actually is—is is there some—is there something about about the way about the way females see and understand the world that is different from males, and the evidence would suggest they are. And and I guess sci-fi is a good way of illustrating that.
2: Yeah, and I think I mean, of so I'm like really chronically disappointed by the last sort of 15 minutes of movies, mm. like, Almost 100 percent of the time, I just as soon walk out 15 minutes before the end and watch the last, like the conclusion. Yeah. Uh, but this is one of those films that actually wraps up really nicely. Like the, the kind of the note that it closes on is really intriguing.
1: Well, intriguing is uh, a good way. I mean, because resolving is always like, well, that's too neat.
2: Yeah. Or here comes a sequel. <laughs>
1: indeed well thinking that now we've done your five so that was so let's run through them we've got we've got the shout 1978 Uh we've got the children 2008 colin 2008 tony 2009 and annihilation 2018 i mean that's a really good bunch and thinking about the way you've talked about it um i would i would think that the, the common theme between those five is a is about um is literally about human condition which sounds like really vague in general but I think given the sort of colonial stuff the idea of what happens to when we're dead what happens mm-hmm. to us if the world is dying mm-hmm. um how do we cheat? what if children don't do what they me- don't aren't the innocents we believe they're meant to be mm-hmm. these all kind of invert the way that we see we're taught the world is now you know the way we're conditioned to see mm-hmm. the world all these horror films that you're mentioning kind of play with that, don't they? And go, which is, which I guess is that at the root of a good horror film, I suppose.
2: Yeah. And I think they all kind of take a really unconventional approach to storytelling. Um, cause that's, it's a problem with horror and I'm like absolutely a dedicated horror fan, but you end up seeing the same story told so many different ways mm. that when you finally see one that doesn't, that doesn't obey the rules, if you like mm. it, it really sort of lingers with you. um, and I tend to find that it's often these films that are sort of like, like, <laughs> off in the corners. I mean, Annihilation, I think, is going to probably be pretty popular. But um, all of these other ones that are kind of like lurking in the shadows that people have made with very little money and really this sort of passionate idea about something quite odd
0: mm.
2: really tend to deliver uh, thoughtful, kind of curious stuff.
1: But I think, I mean, the Colin and Tony, in particular, for any British filmmakers listening, is a great examples of where, if if you can show a sort of heart and soul, not necessarily show high production values, then people will get that. I mean, your reading of those two films is not—you have to work to find that. That's not—you're not told all this,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, and,
1: and sure. that—and that's what the filmmaker has to have confidence in: is that the people who like to think about movies are going to see what you're trying to get across. I mean, you you don't have you don't have to read many scripts to find the um many spec scripts to find people with their their wonderful exposition explanations as to why everything's evil when yeah. when it's just not necessary.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean this is the this is the really lovely thing I think about all of these movies in different ways is they're each kind of an indictment where you sort of feel complicit in some way. You know, either you're complicit in this sort of, like, weird colonial narrative or you're complicit in the sense of, like, oh, I could be that guy. Mm. (laughs) Um, But it's sort of, they all kind of implicate you or or involve you in some sort of guilty way that's really nice. Um, I think The Children is a really good example of doing it in sort of a fun way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, But the other ones are a bit darker in terms of what they're asking of you as a viewer.
1: And um, I think majority of these, if, if annihilation has a has an intriguing end, I mean Tony's ending is is bleak as hell because it isn't the ending that usually serial killer film end, is it?
2: No, well, no. I mean Tony, I see this is a film that I'm really surprised everybody wasn't talking about it when it came out because it is it's a magic film, mm. like really all the way through it, sort of like. Uh, messes with your expectations Um, because it's not set to a kind of standard beat sheet. It doesn't really follow the kind of the rules of a story about a serial killer. It doesn't even follow the rules of kind of suspense or any of that. Like when you find yourself all tangled up feeling weird, it's not because you're afraid that somebody's going to get, you know, knifed in the neck. You're just uncomfortable for this guy. And it's, yeah, it's wonderful, and it doesn't ever let you go. It doesn't ever let it doesn't ever let that be satis- satisfied.
1: No, no, and I'm glad. Well, I'm glad that this is this is part of the reason why I wanted to do the uh, the Great British Horror uh, offshoot of the podcast because I think it's worth shining a light on some of this stuff because we can get a bit overtaken by, you know, there's this there's, there's some interesting films that have come out of Blumhouse, but but they are overtaking our perceptions of what horror should and shouldn't be, and yeah. and there's something. There's something curious about someone living in a council flat in Dolston that the Blumhouse will never be able to show us. And, Absolutely. And I think that's what, you know, what, um, I mean, Peter, Peter Fernando is the, is the character actually plays him. I mean, like, uh-huh. anyone that's read um, Killing for Company, the Brian Masters book about Dennis Nielsen, mm-hmm. w- will see it and it will see that character in every beat. And it's almost like, it's almost like if, if Dennis Nielsen had been unemployed, then this would be Tony. Mm-hmm. I mean Dennis Nielsen as a serial killer from my understand of the story, you know, he basically had a nice civil service job. So he went about his day, nobody batted an eyelid and came home and he killed people.
2: Okay. It's a, the book that you just took the, the book that you just mentioned is called Killing for Company. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. It's I
2: haven't fun. read this. That sounds amazing.
1: If you read it, it is I mean, it's the character of Tony, but but in but working in the civil service. Yeah, yeah. Because there's really- that whole that whole playing dead and and, and wanting to be dead and masturbating and all that kind of stuff that's straight out of killing the company amazing yeah Yeah. there you go i'm glad i could pass that on yeah thank you well look i think that's our time is provided absolutely free if you want to help me get the podcast out to more people please take a moment to leave a review on itunes or if you want to help me out directly there's a link in the show notes to my patreon page all contributions are welcome and the music is by chris reed of the composers.tv